You came because you wanted him, didn't you? Me too. That's why we're here. We want him. We want more of him. Pete asked me to tell you something about the Christian mystics and the things that we can learn from their lives. But before I explain or try and help you to understand what a Christian mystic is, and we look at some, I thought it might help you to know a little bit about me. And I'm going to compress this really short, keep it really short. I became a Christian when I was 14 through Youth for Christ. I went to a little Methodist church that didn't practice the gifts of the Spirit. And I used to go home and have time with God and sit in my room with my back against my bed. You can't see me if I do that, can you? With my back against my bed and worship. And the presence of God would come in my room. And I would shake. And I used to think, well, this is strange. But I feel God, so it must be fine. And I didn't tell anybody about that. I just loved his presence. And I don't know how I knew, but I knew in here that it was possible to live in that presence all the time. To stay continually consciously aware of his presence. I had no idea how to do it. And I probably still have not much of an idea. (laughs) Some. But I knew it was possible and I longed for it. So I started to ask God, how is that possible? Can I do that? I think you are showing me I can do that. And he gave me this scripture. Jeremiah 16 Sorry, Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. And God started to show me that there were people from long ago who walked ancient paths who really knew him. And I could learn from them. So I started to read when I was 16 about Teresa of Avila and a load of other people. And I loved it. And I found it really difficult at the same time. Because there was stuff that they believed and stuff they did I didn't like. But they had an amazing, incredible, deep, profound relationship with God that turned on my hunger and wouldn't let me go. So I am asking Jesus for hunger for you as you listen to these people and you hear about their lives, that it will turn hunger on and increase it in you. If I'm going to talk to you about the Christian mystics, it would help you to know what one was, wouldn't it? So a Christian mystic at its most basic is any Christian who believes that God is meant to be experienced. So I'm going to guess that is the majority of people in the room. Yeah? Okay. There are Christians who don't believe that God is meant to be experienced. Or if they do believe that he's meant to be experienced, they have absolutely no expectation that they will experience him. So at its most basic, a Christian mystic is you lot, someone who believes that God is meant to be experienced. 
What really marks a mystic is that they have this deep inner longing for God. They have a kind of inward pull. Okay, They feel that pull in their spirit towards him. They want relationship with him. They really want to connect. They deeply want to connect with him. And they feel that pull. That pull marks out their heart more than the experiences they have. So if you try and judge a mystic by the level of experience, you get in a muddle. So if you saw somebody and said, well, you've had two open visions, so you're on your way to being a mystic. And someone else, well, you've had five open visions. You've seen an angel appear to you with a flaming spear and you get pulled up into heaven. So you're definitely a mystic. That would be like saying to an evangelist, how many people have you led to Jesus this week? Oh, you've only led two. So you're not an evangelist then, are you? You've really got to meet the rotor of five. It doesn't make sense. It's to do with the person's heart. So a mystic has a deep longing for the presence of God and that inner pull. And I used to stop there with my definition. But I think I need to say more. Because longing is not enough. We can long for him, but it needs to drive us towards him. So a mystic is somebody who has that inner pull, that longing, and they let it drive them to pursue him, to pursue his presence above anything else. Okay? So they believe that God is meant to be experienced. They have an inner longing or pull, desire for intimacy with him, and that drives them to connect. And they believe that it is perfectly possible to live in the continuous, conscious awareness of the presence of God. Would you like that? Yes, please. Me too. (laughs) Okay, so you're happy with that? The word mystic comes from a New Testament Greek word, mysterion, which, what do you think that means? Mystery. Mystery. Of course it does. Surprise, surprise. Mystery. Or it means to close the mouth, to keep a secret. Because it's a New Testament, from a New Testament Greek word, we can think that it's a biblical word. And this is important. Mystic is not a New Testament designation. You will not find it in the fivefold. We don't get apostles, prophets, evangelists, mystics. There are lots of people in the Bible we could call mystics, but it's not listed. That term, Christian mystic, is a church history term. And we've used it in the past, the people of God have used it, as a kind of catch-all for anybody they're not sure what category to put in. (laughs) So we're not quite sure what to do with you and you're a bit weird. So we're going to stick you in this Christian mystics category. Many of the Christian mystics we would call apostles. Many of them, great many of them, we would call prophets today. Okay, are you happy with that? You'll hold that in your head. Let's look at some, all right? Here's somebody that I think you'll have heard of. Probably the most famous Christian mystic. At the millennium, Time Life magazine voted this man... 
one of the ten most influential mystics, no, ten most influential people to have lived in the previous thousand years. Are you serious? Am I in the way? Can you see that? Francis of Assisi, have you heard of him? Yeah, good. He was born, <laughs> he was born, let me look for his name, because I've forgotten it, what his real name was. No, I can't find it. I haven't got my glasses on, which is why. There he is. Giovanni. <laughs> Giovanni Francesco Benedone. I'm terribly sorry I don't speak any Italian. That's the best I can do. The Francesco in the middle is where we get the Francis. I'm going to call him Francis from now on. He was unusual, shall we say. This man dropped his trousers in front of a bishop. Okay? He talked to animals. He gave away everything, and I mean everything, everything that he owned. And to many of us, many people today would look at him and think he was mentally ill. But we are saying, no, he's an amazing man. He's a wonderful Christian mystic that we can learn from. He was quite a party animal. And he lived in Assisi in Italy. And when he was 20, Assisi went to war with another city, another town called Pergia. It was the time when they had city-states. And they went and fought one another. And Francis was going to go and fight. So he went off to the front. By the way, I need to tell you, these people, many of the older ones I'm going to tell you about, I am interpreting for you. Many of them were way, way past where the church was in their understanding of the day. But they fell short of what we would know of the doctrine of grace. So there are things in their life and things in their theology that we wouldn't agree with. So I am interpreting them for you. When I'm speaking to you, don't feel pleased like you're sitting in a history lesson. Listen with your spirit. Because God puts people in the world, this one is one of them, to show us what a full version of a gift would look like. So if you wanted to know what a complete version or a high version of a healing ministry would look like, you could look at someone like John G. Lake and think, oh, that's what I can aim for. I'm going for that. These people show us something of what a fullness of intimacy and depth of relationship with God can look like. So as I'm speaking, listen with your spirit and say, God, do it again and do it with me. Okay, do it with me, regardless of what your previous experience has been. Even though it's warm in here, stay with me and say, Jesus, do it for me. I want that. So Francis goes to war, goes to fight. He's not very good at it. He gets captured and he's imprisoned. And while he's imprisoned, he's unwell. And that illness stays with him when he's released. Despite being captured, despite being ill, Francis decides he wants to be a soldier. And this is a time when you can't be a soldier unless you're wealthy. Because you need to be able to provide your own horse, your own weapons, your own armor and uniform, which his fantastic, wealthy, um, 
cotton merchant or cloth merchant father manages to do for him. So he kicks him out with all this armor and Francis goes off to the front. While he's on his way, he meets a nobleman who has fallen on hard times, who is destitute. So Francis stops, takes off all his armor and his uniform and everything and gives it to this nobleman and they swap clothes. So now he's got the rags of this nobleman. And that night, he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a castle. The castle is full of armor. And all of the armor has crosses on it. And he hears a voice saying to him, this armor is for you and all of your followers. And I love him. He wakes up in the morning. He thinks, yes, I'm obviously meant to be a soldier. He just takes it completely literally. I need to head off to the front. And when he tries to, he becomes ill again and he can't get anywhere. And during his illness, he has an encounter with God. And God says to him, turn around, Francis, go back, turn back and serve the master, not the man. So now the poor man is really confused. Soldier, I don't know what I am. So he goes back to Assisi and he starts to really seek God. What are you saying to me, God? What am I for? And one day, while he's out riding his horse, having this discussion with God, he comes across a leper. Francis is really fastidious. Leprosy really revolts him. But he sees this man and he gives him money because he just is so moved with compassion for him. And when he gets off his horse to do that, he sees a ruined church or a church that's really falling down. And he goes inside and he is praying. What do I do, God? What do I do? And he hears an audible voice. And the voice says to him three times, build my church that is in ruins, that has fallen into ruins. Three times he hears this voice and he's thinking, what's that? Oh, that's weird. And he realizes it's God and he goes out in the spirit. I love him because when he comes to, he takes it really literally. Here's a church. I'm in a church. It's in ruins. I need to do something about it. So he goes back to his father. I love this bit of the story. And he takes a load of his father's cloth and he goes and sells it. His father doesn't know anything about it. And he takes the money and he goes to the priest of this fallen down church. And this lovely priest has obviously been round the block a bit. And he understands and he says to Francis, okay, Francis, where's the money come from? And Francis said, it's, you know, I sold this cloth from my dad. And the priest won't take the money because he realizes that Francis' father knows nothing about it. Even though the priest won't take the money, Francis's father is furious. Francis has been giving away stuff all the time, lots of things. And his dad has had enough and his father beats him and locks him up in his house. But his mom lets him go. His mom lets him go. Come on, moms. Um, his mom lets him go. But his father has really had enough of Francis' behavior. So at this time, you could disown a child. And to disown a child, you have to take them before a bishop. 
and have the child swear before the bishop that they no longer see it as their right to accept any inheritance from their earthly father, that they are now separate from him. So Francis's father takes him before the bishop, but before the bishop can open his mouth or Francis's father can say anything, Francis takes off all his clothes. It's going to get your attention, isn't it? Takes all his clothes off. Now, depending on the version you read, he's either standing there with nothing on or he's standing there in a poor man's sort of shirt that he's got on under his clothes. He takes his clothes and he hands them to his dad. And he says to him, on earth, you have been my earthly father. But now I hand to my heavenly father all my treasure, all my trust, and all my hope. And he walks off. I was going to say he goes with the shirt on his back, but probably not even that. He's, he's gone. He got to a place where he has absolutely nothing. And he has given himself. He's just surrendered himself to God. Here I am, God. I give you me. He becomes an incredible preacher, an amazing anointed preacher. He is absolutely full of joy. It's irrepressible. He becomes what they call God's juggler because he just can't hold it in. He sings. He plays music, he writes poetry, he engages people with the truth about God in a language that they can understand. He used to manifest so much in the spirit that it used to freak the people out. So he learned how to kind of keep it in, how to operate connected to God, but not manifest so much so that they could engage with him. His joyful abundance attracted all his old drinking friends who came and joined him and gave their lives to God. And they traveled together around Italy. They worked in the fields. They slept in haylofts. And whenever they could, they told people about Jesus in a language they could understand. They put their hands on blind eyes and they opened. They saw tumors fall off people. Francis turned water into wine and he raised the dead. Does it remind you of anybody? (laughs) And he traveled, they traveled through Italy, village to village to village, and whole towns and villages were converted in one go. So he's transforming a nation as he's coming down through Italy. His heart was to really live the Gospels, to really live like Jesus. And he wanted to write a rule for his followers. By that, that is a a kind of um, a set of values, if you like, for the people, his followers to live by. And he wanted to base it entirely on the Gospels. But he didn't know if that was a bit naive. So he decided he would go to Rome and go and ask the Pope for permission to do this. The church at the time of Francis was extremely wealthy, had great political power, great wealth, but it was bankrupt spiritually, had no spiritual authority. 
Thomas Aquinas and the Pope were having a conversation. And the Pope said to Thomas Aquinas, Oh, Thomas, we can now no longer say silver and gold have we none. And Thomas is like quick. And he comes back and he says, Yes, you're right, your holiness. But neither can we say, rise up and walk. And that was the situation in the church at the time. So Francis is going to meet the Pope. The night before they meet, the Pope has a dream. And he sees a massive church. And the church is falling down. This huge church is beginning to topple. And leaning against the wall of this church is Francis. And he's holding it up. And it's patently obvious if Francis moves, the church is coming down. So when he sees the Pope the next morning, the Pope is completely happy to let him found his order to base it entirely on the words of Jesus, entirely on the Gospels, and to live like that. Francis wanted to live a simple life of loving Jesus. He just loved him. He adored him. And then he wanted to simply love people too. He started to um, found sort of prayer houses where people could meet and pray. Um, Monks could meet that really wanted to follow God. And a lady, one of his converts, a lady called Claire, who was also from Assisi, um, founded Houses for Nuns. On one particular occasion, Claire organized a meal for the nuns and the monks to come together and for Francis to speak. The place that they were meeting in, I think, was on a hill. And when this meal was going on and Francis was speaking, they just heard loads of cacophony of noise and everything outside, people shouting and all sorts outside where they were. The people had looked and seen the the building in the distance where they were, and it appeared to be on fire. So they came running to put the fire out. But when they got there, there was no real fire to put out. It was just like Azusa Street when people saw what looked like the building of the church on fire. When I look at Francis' life, I just look at a man devoted who loved Jesus. I don't know loads and loads about the intimacy of his connection with God, but I want to say, yes, God, do that with me. If that's what a devoted looks, life looks like, yes, please. Okay, let's go to someone else, someone I really like. Not that I didn't like him. But. Have you heard of Brother Lawrence? Some of you are nodding, Brother Lawrence. He was a Frenchman. He was born Nicholas Herman in Lorraine. He fought in the Thirty Years' War. He was injured and he became a valet. And then when he was 55, and I don't know why, he decided to join a Carmelite monastery in Paris. The monks didn't think he was especially bright, so they let him be a lay brother. So he worked in the kitchen. He spent the vast majority of the rest of his life in the kitchen cooking, cleaning pots and pans. And then when he was an old man, he mended sandals. He gave the rest of his life 
to keeping Jesus in mind. Every day, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to focus on him. He said, I hold myself like a worshipper before him. And I adore him and fix my mind and my attention on him. And when it wanders, I just call it back to him. And that's what he kept doing. He didn't beat himself up for not thinking about God. He just returned his mind to him when he found it wandering. And he loved him. He said, we don't need to have great things to do. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying in the pan for the love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It's enough for me to pick up a straw from the ground for the love of him. Like Francis, he became just full of joy. The presence of God was on him all the time. He said it took him 10 years to learn to train his heart and soul to stay focused and connected with God. And it didn't bother him that it took 10 years. He thought, that's just what I'm giving my life to, to love him and to adore him. People came from all over France, all over the place, to see this man wash pots. That's a woodcut. And there are woodcuts where in the foreground you can see um, Brother Lawrence cleaning pots. And in the back you can see an open door and all these people in their finery, big hats with feathers, standing in the doorway because they wanted to see this man And the presence that was all over him. And they could feel the presence of God. And that's what they wanted. Because it's what we want, isn't it? So they came and watched him wash pots. They would stand for ages. And they would shift round so different people could see. To see him wash pots. He wrote letters to people to encourage them. When he died, those letters were put together in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. A little book, a wonderful, delicious little book. If you get a chance to read it, read it. I love the way he hides himself away in his spirit with God. He delights in the deliciousness of that intimate presence with God and enjoys it and stays there. And that's what I love about him. And his language, although it was a long good long time ago. It's, he's relatively easy to follow and understand now. And I love that about him, that there's sort of sensitive in his spirit. Not all mystics were living in monasteries a long time ago. There are modern ones. There are ones that we can look at now. <laughs> Mike, I am not an IT person. So Mike has helped me with the PowerPoint. Thank you, Michael. Not Homer Simpson. This lady. Thank you. Great. Just can't get the staff. This lady. Do you know who she is? 
I know it says Heidi Baker, but do you know who Heidi Baker is? Yeah, good. I, I love this lady because she adores the presence of God. She says that she stops for the one. And the one she stops for first is the one. And she loves him. And she adores him. And she worships him. If you have ever been to hear her speak, you will know that you don't know what you're going to get. And you turn up and people come from all over the place and they've got their iPads because they're ready to take notes. And they've got pens to write stuff down, what she's going to say. And she comes to the front and while worship's happening, she's usually lying on about six chairs at the front worshipping. And then she has the microphone and she comes to the front and she kneels down and she worships. And she has got a gorgeous voice. And she just praises him. And you think, in a minute, she's going to get up and she's going to say something. And she doesn't. She just worships him. And she worships him. And you can join in if you like. But I'm going to be worshipping him. Because she is the message to us. She is the message. You stop for him. Stop for him. She goes into villages in Mozambique. She says, bring me all your deaf. She prays for all the deaf and all of them here. She has hidden in her heart the love of God and she stops for him first. She gets in her little Cessna plane with Roland flying. She puts earbuds in her ear, ears and crawls into a little crawl place, small crawl place. And even if she's got visitors traveling with her, she does this and she just worships, gets into that place and worships because she loves him and she stops for him first. And she is that message to us. Stop for him. Look what happens if you make intimacy with him first, the priority. She says, I get much more done that way, but that isn't why she's doing it. She's doing it because of him. Do you know... uh, Do you know that a life of intimacy will always eventually produce the miraculous? Always. It might look varied. It might look like amazing words of knowledge or gold dust or healing or oil. or It might look really varied. But intimacy will always produce the miraculous. The miraculous, the presence of the miraculous doesn't always mean intimacy though. Because the heart of God is to love and to heal and to touch and to move. So just because there is the miraculous doesn't always mean intimacy. If you want a life of miracles, pursue intimacy with the heart of God. Okay. And she does. How am I doing for time? Okay, here's someone I don't think you'll have heard of. He looks rather serious, doesn't he? Have you heard of him? Some of you are nodding. Frank, no, I don't know whether it's, I think it's Lowback. I'm assuming that's how you say it. Lowback, okay. Sorry, Frank. He was a missionary in the 1930s to the Moro people of the Philippines. 
They were illiterate Muslim people and he really cared about them. But he was getting nowhere, not really anywhere in making inroads to connect with them. And then he was asking himself this question. All the time he was trying to connect and help them to know more about Jesus, he kept asking himself, is it possible to live always in the presence of God? He said, can we have that contact with God all the time? All the time awake, fall asleep in his arms and awaken in his presence. Can we attain that? Can we do his will all the time? Can we think his thoughts all the time? Or or are there periods where busyness and pleasures and crowding companions must necessarily push God out of our thoughts? What he decided to do was to play a game. He wanted to experiment with the rest of his life to try and answer that question. So he made up a game. You've got to love it, haven't you? Somebody who so wants to connect with God that he'll make up a game to connect with him. And he called it his game with minutes. What he tried to do, and I really don't recommend that you start where he did, what he wanted to do was to be trying to connect with the presence of God every minute of every hour. Okay? I think that's a bit of a marathon run for me. Every minute of every hour, he wanted to be constantly aware. You would see when he's been working and writing, he would draw little clocks in the top and he would write down the minutes that he felt he was aware of the presence of God. And he played this game with God. Let's just see how long I can be aware of you. And he didn't get aggravated with himself when he lost awareness. He just turned his affection back to God. Now, really, the question isn't about minutes or hours or days. It's about how much can I be aware of God's presence? And he trained himself by this game. He trained himself to connect with the presence of God. And as he did, the presence of God just rested on him. And the people he was working with said, what's that? I want that. That looks good. They used to tell him he would make a really good Muslim because the presence of God was all over him. And he said, no, I don't. I love Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus that you can see on me, that you can feel. There is a great story talking about the presence of God. There is a lovely story about John Wimber. And he was standing in an airport waiting to check in in the days when you couldn't do it online. He was standing in this long queue for a flight and he got his bags with him. And he suddenly realized after about 15 minutes that the queue he was in was for the wrong flight. And he really needed to be in that queue there. So he picked his bags up and he walked to the back of the queue that he needed. Except when he was standing in the first queue, there was a little old lady behind him. And when he moved to the second queue, she followed him and stood by him. And he turned round, I love this, and he smiled at her. And he said, you like that, don't you? You like that. And she said, it's wonderful. What is it? Tell me what it is. And I just love that. God wants to rest on his people like that. So people say, what's that? I love that. What is it? 
You happy if I finish with some flyers? I call these people flyers. <laughs> these are the people that levitate, that come off the ground in the presence of God. Now, I know this is a bit of a controversial thing, but I love their stories. So I'm going with it. I could give you a list of them as long as my arm. They include Thomas Aquinas. They include one of the first um, documented um, archbishops of Canterbury, Dunstan. They, they came off the ground, caught up into intimacy. I am not talking about the occult practice. I am talking about people who encounter, really encounter the presence of God. And in that place, God pulls them up. You'll have heard of this lady, I'm fairly certain. This is Teresa of Avila. She's probably one of the best known mystics after Francis of Assisi. And she was um, the daughter of Alfonso. And he had lots of other children. And when she was a child, she really loved God. And as she got a bit older, she was extremely beautiful. And she attracted a lot of attention. And she really liked the attention. And she liked the partying. And she liked her friends. And she liked what she looked like. And her father was starting to get worried about her. He had got nine other children and no wife by that time to look after them. And he was getting a bit concerned about the effect of her on his other children. So he did what a good dad might have done at that time. And he shipped her off to a convent. So she goes in. (laughs) She goes into um, an Augustinian convent. Sorry, it's my daughter at the front. Um, Which is actually very lax. So she ends up having a load of men coming to see her. Beautiful Teresa in the convent will go and see her. Which is working quite well. Until one day, one day she drops down, apparently dead. Just falls to the floor as if she's dead. And the nuns lay her out in the morgue to bury her. She is completely motionless. She appears to have no signs of life. Then three days later, just as rapidly as she fell to the floor, she starts to move her eyes and she comes round. She's really stiff. She's been lying still, completely stationary for three days. So her muscles and joints are very stiff and it takes a long time for her to come round. But when she does... The men stop coming. I think the idea of a woman that falls to the ground dead every now and then was a bit of an off-putting. <laughs> Might have had something to do with it. But she doesn't want to see them either because she has decided she really wants to go after God. The convent that she's in, like I said, was very relaxed. So she changes and moves to a Carmelite convent. It's not an awful lot better, but she really decides to press in to try and know God. And I hope you will take this as an encouragement because when she starts off trying to seek God's presence, she has quite a period of time where she struggles. She finds it difficult to connect with God. She doesn't know quite how. She's, she's not finding it easy. She gets bored and she falls asleep. But then she has a like a new spiritual director, somebody who will help her to connect with God. And he introduces her to a hymn. 
that help it's got this anointing on this hymn that helps her to connect with God just the same as us you know when we worship and we sing there are some songs we sing there's an anointing that's on them and we really can come into the God's presence more easily exactly the same and she finds it easier to come into his presence and after that she begins to have visions a lot of visions she sees angels in her spirit and then one day She sees one with her eyes and he's quite little, but he's covered in fire and he carries a spear and there is fire on the end of the spear and he comes up to her and he puts the spear in her heart and takes it out again. And he does that a few times. It's very weird, isn't it? (laughs) But after that experience, she feels just on fire with love for God passionately in love with God and she wants to see the church reformed she wants to see people loving God if they're giving their lives to God in as nuns or monks she wants to see them doing that wholeheartedly and then affecting their communities as a result so she sets up proper prayer houses where people are going to meet with God And she works with a man called John of the Cross, who looks after the monasteries. Both of them come off the ground. Both of them are caught up into the presence of God. They seem to experience um, a lightness. She said at first it felt quite, quite violent, almost like a pulling up. But she's in the presence of God and she learned that if she didn't get frightened, if she went with it, it was just wonderful. And she would deeply, profoundly encounter God in that place. There are lots of miracles from her life. She multiplied food and wine and she definitely raised the dead. One day she was building, they were building a prayer house and her little nephew, Gonzales, came to see her and he was playing about on the building site on a wall that hadn't been properly built, collapsed on him and killed him. And she ran to him, put her hands on him and as she leaned forward, the veil that was over her head fell over the top of him. And as it fell over the top of him, He came back and he was completely fine. And he used to tease her. He used to say, Aunt Teresa, you better be praying for me because you are the reason that I'm not already in heaven with Father God. (laughs) So pray hard. (laughs) She, She has amazing experiences. One of the one of the things that I love is that she was actually a very practical lady, very down to earth, quite business like. The nuns had an infestation of lice. Lots of the villages round about um, the people had lice. They just did. And the nuns had had enough of this, these lice. So she gets them singing an anti lice song. <laughs> Which I really love. It's like um, making declarations. The lice disappear. But not only do they disappear, they never return. Even though the villagers round about get them and the people they're interacting with have them, the nuns no longer get them. It's good. Yes, lice free. She, um, they built a convent and there was no water for it. And she said, I want you to dig the well here. 
And they said, Teresa, there is no water there. We, there's not going to be any water. And she said, no, dig the well here. When they dug the well, there was water. And that well has been providing water for that convent 400, 500 years till today. It's still providing water for that convent. Last one. Probably the best known flyer in church history is this man. Joseph of Cupertino. Look at his dates. He's not medieval. He is, we're in the colonial era, coming into the colonial era. And we have over 70 recorded eyewitness accounts of this man in connection with the presence of God, in the spirit of God, coming off the ground. He would go up into trees and sit in branches, on little thin branches with birds, because he's just drawn up adoring God. People saying the name Jesus to him, he would connect with the presence of God, and he'd go. <laughs> Love it. It's just gorgeous. They called him the gaper in his monastery, because he often seemed to go into trances um, and be appear vacant. And I'm sorry to say that the monks didn't like him very much because he didn't get a lot of work done. And they would try and get him out of these trances by sticking him with pins and burning him and stuff, which was very unpleasant. But the unusual thing was that he had incredible wisdom. If they had a problem to solve, they would call him in and he would be able to answer really complex problems and sort them out. He got this great insight. He is called the Flying Friar. <laughs> I love it. Makes me think of fish and chips for some reason. Anyway, he, um, there's a story of him coming across some monks who are working with a pulley system to try and get a large stone cross from the floor up onto the top of a church building. And they are failing miserably. This isn't working. And this is interesting. He comes along and he seems to be able to choose at will to come off the ground. He takes this stone cross as if it was a light, as light as air. And he goes up with it to the top of the building and puts the cross on the top of the building. <laughs> bring on, bring it on. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the church wasn't quite so keen on his flying exploits, and they tried to keep him hidden. It's a bit difficult, like trying to hide a helium balloon, isn't it? <laughs> I used to make me laugh. Teresa used to used to go up and down, and the nuns would sit on her to try and keep her down. Let's go for a ride on Teresa. <laughs> anyway, he, they kept him hidden for 35 years. He wasn't allowed to celebrate mass, um, which is a shame. Okay, how can we know that kind of relationship with God? How can we know a depth of intimacy and connection with him, which is what we long for? Can I say, make it about him. Stop for him. Make him the center of your love and your attention. That's what the mystics did. That's what people who live now that I would think of as probably being like that, mystics, they do that now. They stop for him. 
They make him their focus. They are interested in loving him. Getting up in the morning and loving him. And I think, how can I kiss the face of Jesus today? How can I love you? I want to love you. I want to love you. Make him the one you stop for. Adore him. Do you know that he longs for you? Each of you. Not the touchy-feely person sitting next to you. You. He longs for you. He wants you. And I don't mean in the same way as the World War I recruiting poster where Kitchener is pointing out of the poster, your country needs you. I don't mean your God needs you. I mean that he comes up to you and he puts his hand on the side of your face. Sorry, that's cold too. On the side of your face and he looks at you and he says, I love you. I made you the way you are. I want depth of intimacy, of relationship with you. Come, come and be with me. Come and let me increase that pull, that longing in you because I want relationship with you. We are need-focused, and he is relationship-focused. We are clock-focused, and he is relationship-focused. He knows what you need to do. He knows what you've got to get done. He knows about the children that need feeding and this pile of laundry and that task you've got to do for work. He knows about that. Come to him without an agenda. And by that, I don't mean come without a prayer, a a list of things to pray. Do come without a list of things to pray. But come without a fixed idea of what connecting with him is going to look like. Don't decide, well, I haven't really met with God unless I hear his voice or have a prophetic word or intercede for this person or pray for that. Or it's got to look like this. Just come and hold yourself in his presence and be in his presence for him just for him keep yourself there for him and adore him don't compare yourself to other people we say it over and over again but we do it because Jean and John and Joseph pray for three hours and spend ages lying on their face or they do this you don't have to do that find how you connect with him And know that that is good because he wants you. He wants to connect with you. Believe that it is possible for you to live in the continual conscious awareness of the presence of God. Not the person next to you. Not that person. Not that wonderful, amazing person. But you. Believe that's what he wants. Because he does. He does. He just wants to give you his presence. He loves it. And I would say, lay yourself on him. Just give him you. Just say, here I am, I give you me. All the stuff, I give you me. You have it. You have me. He's in you. He's never going away. He lives here, in you. So when you're going to connect with him, what you're doing is, it's like you've got a mirror up here. That's your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And he's here. 
and you are just tilting the mirror, okay, to catch the light that is in you. A bit like a mirror child with a mirror and the sun can tilt the mirror till it catches the rays of the sun and direct it onto something to burn it. Tilt your mirror, come and be still and say, Jesus, help me. Help me. You know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. Tilt this. Get my mind and my will and everything just focused on you. Just want to be focused on you and hold yourself there. Okay? We just love you, Jesus. Wow. We adore you, Lord. We came here for you. All of us. That's why we're here. We're here for you. Yeah. We want more of you, God. More of you. We want to connect with you. Deeply, profoundly, heart-to-heart connection with you. Yeah. Thank you, God. So, Lord, I just, I say, increase the pull in the room. The pull on our hearts towards you. That longing, God, will you come and stir it now? You stir it up and would you increase it? Increase the pull on us towards you, towards intimacy, connection. Yeah, deep connection with you. Thank you, God. Just release that now. An increase of hunger and pull towards him. Yeah, thank you, God. Increase longing. Increase longing. Yeah. Let more of that come, God. More of that come. Enjoy it. More of it, God. More of it. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Lord, I want you to remove our disappointment. The disappointment that we have in the area of relationship and intimacy with you that we don't talk about always. Where we've tried to connect with you and we've wanted it to look like something and it just hasn't been. So God, we give you that. We just give you that. I ask you to wash it away. To wash it away. And I want you to increase hope. I just increase hope. Increase hope with the expectation that we can meet with you. That you want to meet with us. That we can do nothing that is going to turn your love away from us. You want to connect with us. Thank you, God. Yeah, more of you, God. More of you, lovely Lord.